Hi, this is Steve Roost and you're listening to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio. Each week we give you the best news, views and interviews from the health technology world. From CEOs and founders to entrepreneurs and clinicians. The companies and people that are shaping the future face of healthcare. All on the world's number one talk health radio. Hello and welcome to Health Tech Hour on UK Health Radio, the largest and best talk health radio in the world. My name is Steve Roost and each week we bring you the best news, views and interviews with the leaders, clinicians and CEOs and founders who are driving the health tech revolution in the UK and beyond. I am a CEO and founder of a health tech business myself called PocDoc and I am passionate about the people and companies who are changing the world. It's good to be back on air. We took a couple of weeks off of Christmas and New Year, did a couple of favorite shows we re-ran, um, which, which went down very well. So for anyone that listened, thank you very much for listening. Today's show, I'm actually coming live from the French Alps, um, which looks very snowy, very nice. Um, so it's, it's, we're, we've taken the show on the road, so to speak. Um, please follow us on Instagram. It's at Health Tech Hour. Um, you can find us on YouTube. You can also find us now on Spotify, which is which is great. Uh, so, what I would like to do before today's show starts is um, is just to start the year by thanking all of our previous listeners um, over the last twelve months. So we now we had our show's first birthday at the end of December. Um, we're now well over three million listeners cumulatively across across just twelve month period, um, and we're you know we're getting fifty to sixty thousand people listening every week which is fantastic. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. And also thank you very much to all of our guests for, for coming on and making it such a great show. Now, today's show is going to be a banger. Um, we're going to start the new year with a, with, with a, with a big one. Um, it's very important. Lots of stuff that's, that's in here that's very, very, very relevant for today. Um, so, yes, on today's show, we have Dr. Debs Das, who is a cardiologist consultant at Bart's Health Centre the digital transformation lead um, at Bart's Health, and also the CEO and founder of Autis, which is a remote monitoring platform being scaled out across the NHS. Now, we're going to dig into exactly what all of that means, but, but broadly speaking, um, Autis aims to make the patient journey across any type of disease as simple and intuitive as Uber does for taxis or Booking.com does for hotels. And Debs has... Um, Debs and I have known each other because we've both been on the Digital Health London Accelerator Scheme. Debs was, was obviously with his company, Autis, and, and myself for PopDoc. Um, and there's a lot that we're going to dig into, not just how Autis works and what Debs' mission was and why he stayed on it and how he stayed in the fight, what keeps him motivated, but also things like um, the current backlogs in the NHS system and how uh, digital transformation, how digital services are no longer a peripheral issue they're actually becoming critical in order for, to, for, for the system to be able to cope and, and move through that backlog, which was already there, but it's obviously been exacerbated, exacerbated from COVID. And the other area which I know we're going to dig into is which I personally find really interesting. And we've had a few uh, a few guests like this on the show before is, is um, a clinician. So a doctor or someone in a clinical role moving into an entrepreneurial role, which is an unbelievably interesting journey. So Debs. 
welcome to the show. Or do you want me to call you Dr. Dr. Debs? What would you like me to say? Uh, Debs is fine, as we, as you know, we're friends. So thanks very much for having me on the, on the show, Steve. Good, good to have you on. So um, let's, I always kind of, I, 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 based on our interactions previously, you know, in the show planning and also just, you know, professionally, you're a very busy man. You've got quite a lot going on, you know, you're the CEO and founder of your own startup, as well as being one of the leading cardiologists um, in the UK. So yeah, how, how do you kind of, are you busy? I mean, you know, did you get some time off over Christmas? Uh, no, I actually was working during Christmas. Uh, I had Christmas day off, but yeah, I, I juggle one or two things at the same time, but hey, it keeps things interesting. Uh, oh, it's good, good to have a mission. Exactly. Busy mind and all. So, yeah. Um, uh, cool. but yeah, not... Sorry, go on. No, it's, as I said, it's it's tough, but, you know, if you're passionate about something, uh, these things become uh, become easier, less of a chore. Yeah, you're like the, you know, Elon Musk of cardiology. <laughs> no, not... All of these different things, you know, you're going to the moon, you're going to Mars, you're well, curing people. Well, we're, we're not, not quite, but... It, but a good, good one to aspire to, yeah, for sure. Yeah, not, you know, not not bad role model. Anyway, so um, the way that we do the show, as regular listeners will know, but just for the benefit of, of new listeners, um, is we split the show up into three parts. So the first part is really kind of like an origins part around how um, Debs came to be doing what he's doing and, and how that evolved into Autis and, and the other areas that, that he's involved in. So Debs, as we'll get into, is one of the, is, is really one of the leaders or, or, or the kind of real heavy sort of proponents of um, the expansion of digital digitization within healthcare services in the UK. The middle bit is all around the exciting and groundbreaking world changing stuff that, that Debs is doing um, with autism just, just in general. And then the final bit is where we dig into really what's kept our guests on their mission. So what their mission is and how they keep themselves in the fight. You know, it's, it's very, very hard to get up every day and, and keep pushing and keep pushing. And so we like to try and dig into what keeps people motivated. And, and that might help some listeners, um, you know, with their own motivation and their own mission. So um, let's like dig, let's dig straight into it. So Debs, when did you, when do you first kind of remember your um, interest in becoming a clinician or working in medicine and how, how did that kind of come to pass? I suppose I mean I grew up with a family of doctors my um, my father was a, a, a local general practitioner um, kind of ho- holding up the system for the last you know 30 odd years kind of the bedrock of um, uh, of you know the NHS and I got it largely for from from him um, wanting to to go into a, a a profession such as such as this um, and I, I don't know whether it was him. He'd always told me as I grow up, maybe it's you know uh, subliminal training, but he said, "Oh, you should grow up and be a cardiologist." It's one thing that he he always wow. Wanted he to said do. it. He he said it from the beginning. He was like, "Yeah, you he, be a cardiologist. He, he wanted to be a cardiologist for, but uh, at his that was his dream, but he never quite managed to make it. You know, coming home to a new country. Start, I mean, he's done amazing work. But that was an aspiration that he had. I don't know. I remember him saying that to me, and actually, you know, luckily enough, during med school, is that it was the one subject that I, I really, really was uh, found intriguing and interesting. So it kind of aligned itself uh, uh, to that, and I suppose 
that's where the journey started from a and, medical um, perspective. And um, just out of interest, what, what, what when you were, because obviously, you know, your father was a GP at the coalface, as you say, the bedrock of the system for, for 30 years. What were your impressions of the system as a youngster being, you know, one step removed from someone that was at that bedrock? Like what, what can you remember anything that that time that hasn't been sort of filtered through your subsequent experience? So, I mean, I, so my, my father came relatively late into to the country. So he came in uh, 1980 and I remember largely not seeing him for the first 10 years okay. uh, and he would and again it just shows that the system is exactly the same I, I remember I walked into accident and emergency at Whips Cross where, where I do a lot of my, uh, most of my work and I saw the the floor largely being you know manned by doctors of multi-ethnic uh, uh, faces come from you know various various countries and I just thought this is this is my dad 30 years ago you know and um it's it it was whips cross when my father had his first job so is that right so it was poignant poignant that I was appointed as a consultant then so yeah those those early years were were interesting because my father had to just go whether wherever there was a job you know um and it was only later where he managed to then get into general practice as something that became more stable when we saw him more. But prior to that, hard work. Yeah. Hard um, work. And, and, and other in, in, in med school, other than obviously your kind of father's maybe not so subliminal training, you know, <laughs> if he was just telling you directly to be a cardiologist, what was it particularly that like attracted you all to the subject or to the area? Yeah, I... I I found it one of the few things more easier to understand intuitively. So I gravitated to that, whereas others would just, for some reason, some other subjects, I'll just find a head jar. Um, but I just found it fascinating, you know, as a, um, uh, as a subject. And you then, you then go into it practically. It's one of the few subjects that balance between doing something quite hands-on, procedurally, okay. and the medicine side. Usually, you know, in medicine, you often have to choose between a surgical career or a, or a medical career where it's more. Mm-hmm. And it was one that was quite a hybrid at the time of that you're now getting more and more medical specialities that have more procedural related but cardiology was certainly one of the forefronts of that okay and when you um so you went through med school and you you know you're out of med school and you you're sort of focusing on cardiology what, what kind of struck you as the biggest sort of problems or issues or challenges like you know from that early from from that early kind of period other than the workload and you know that that kind of stuff that everyone has was there was there was there anything that really stuck out or like and another way to think about this might be like what was the kind of what was the existing technology like at the time you know what what, what you know what was it really I don't know what kind of digital technology was there or how what what were the issues or major challenges that you were sort of coming up against as you as you moved into or out of med school and into the profession proper yeah I suppose I only came to the th- to kind of understanding the challenges of uh, the healthcare system as a whole 
once I was able to be less selfish about myself um, and had time. So, you know, up until I would say until I became a registrar, so you go through your, uh, you you qualify, then you have about five years until you try and get into cardiology training. And because it was quite competitive, you know, you can't really think about anything else apart from how do I, get to that training program how do I do my job the best basically yeah how do I be the best correct how do I get the exams out of the way how do I improve my CV to such that I can get on to the training uh, for a cardiologist because without getting on that training program you can never call yourself that and it's a competitive okay and what's the um what like have you got any kind of quantification of number of people that try versus number of people that get on per year or yeah um, so, yeah i mean certainly cardiology is always one of the most competitive to get into uh, and also i suspect it's because of the cohort of people that try to do it as well usually taipei personalities have probably okay. come out of their mother's womb saying i want to do cardiology as well so <laughs> yeah. so um but yeah you don't really have much time to think about the healthcare, well, I certainly didn't because I was just so head down focused on um, uh, on trying to get into cardiology. And, and actually, you know, in, in, when I was certainly going through the system, there's much more focus on academia in a traditional route. You know, um, managers were not at that time really seen as clinicians. You, you know, certainly as cardiologists, your career was you know, getting into cardiology publish some research articles and academia was, was the line. Right. And although that was an interest, I you know, certainly often as I became a registrar, um, I became far more intuitive to the systems failures that would have stopped me being as efficient as a right. doctor as possible. So very... So, stuff, so, so was it like the stuff that prevented you from delivering better care? Personally. Yeah, as always, always a dogmatic person. I can, I, I never liked doing, you know, something in, over three hours that I could do in thirty minutes, and then spend another two and a half hours doing something else. Yeah, uh, often f- found, um, and that you know, again, I've had to grow up, grow up a little bit as actually sometimes a, half, a sweet halfway house, yeah, uh, where you take people along. And the system along with you is more mm-hmm. beneficial than uh, than getting things done that quickly. But yes, it's the. I, I, I then started started noticing um, uh, you know, the, some of the inefficiencies of the healthcare uh, system. Um, I'd always liked transformations. So I actually was. I went on a program for the Royal College of Physicians as chief registrar program so it's there it was a um a year-long fellowship to try and kind of train the future leaders um, yeah. um give us uh, some insights into the challenges of NHS management how uh, give the leadership skills uh doing my own personality test finding out that I was as close to Hitler as one can get <laughs> Uh, um, oh wow good cool so good result very insightful yeah yeah Um, but yeah that that, very it's it's allowed me to have the grounding to try and channel some of that dog dog 
So that was one of the questions I wanted to ask. So um, obviously, I've talked about it on the show before. We've had lots of kind of alumni on the show from this, what we, what's called the Digital Health London Accelerator, which is sort of the NHS, w- one of the many programmes that the NHS runs to highlight and fast track digital innovation within the within the system to the extent that that's sort of possible, you know, given the fragmentation of the system and, and, and so on. But but what I'd like, what I was going to ask you was, were you because it wasn't always that way and these programs started you know reasonably i mean within the last 10 years five to ten years i mean the digital london is six years old i think with we were the sixth cohort i don't know quite there's also the nhs clinical entrepreneurship scheme there's the pioneer scheme and so were you there when that stuff started to first of all be discussed you know in the round so to speak and then be kind of acted upon because i actually think that the nhs deserves a lot of credit for realizing that they had these problems and actually doing what they've done to, to, you know, put these programs in place. But I don't know what you think. Yeah, very much so. So I would, um, I was involved. um, I had started my digital journey. um, uh, Yeah. Six, five, six years ago already. It was part of, um, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, I, um, I had a patient who came into my, uh, who I'd seen as an, uh, an outpatient who'd thoroughly been investigated for absolutely everything. Uh, he was a police officer, and, and a lot of time they had to take off take off work. Really nice guy, but clearly frustrated. Couldn't find out what was wrong with him. And he was just about to leave the room, and he said, oh, but, you know, doctor, my Fitbit tells me that my heart rate goes up to 217 every so often when I'm just sitting there. Yeah. And... And he goes, is that normal? And I said, no, that's not normal. So he was just about, at least I sat him down and I went through, okay, your Fitbit's got an app, let me have a look at this, look at the day. And then it just made me realise, hold on, you know, there's a lot of health information. That was five years ago, sat in the power of this guy's uh, phone. Um, And I then arranged for him to have kind of follow-up appointments with him. I could clearly see he was frustrated. At that time, I'd you know, I was, you know, patient. I would go here. Here's my email address if you if you have any problems. And he was clearly frustrated by the inability to get through to me. Just you know, he didn't want to use my email. That's okay. That's the thing about the the great British public in general do not like to bother. Yeah. Okay. They they quietly sit in and and, and suffer. Sit and, and suffer. Yeah. And so he tried to get through to. Uh, uh, another appointment that was cancelled a number of times, um, uh, couldn't get through. And, and he finally got through to my email. And he said, look, all I need, you know, is just to have a, uh, a, a cons- another consultation. And so that's what spurred Autis. And I, I, I really just thought there has just got to be a better way of us managing and seeing patients um, a this you know uh, and and try and see if we could digitize that entire journey for uh, for the patient itself, but also me as a clinician. You know, a lot a lot of um, these patients we could have managed virtually. So the concept of virtual consultations was something that we started four and a bit years ago already, where there was a project um, already done by uh, by a clinician within Barts. Um, uh, a diabetologist had done, done a lot of work on Skype consultations at the time. Okay. 
And my my view at that point was, uh, you know, I really wanted to take that one step further. You know, video was was one thing, which is great. It allowed for you know patients not to have to come all the way uh, and see us. Um, and you know, once we've clinically examined a patient first, especially in cardiology, second, third time often is not is is not required. Um, but it was to take that step further. You know, how could we make even that consultation more uh, more efficient? Could we get all the help? So it's in medicine, we do a lot of information gathering and delivery during a yep. consultation and we try and narrow it down into a 15 20 minute window mm-hmm. and what that means is neither do i get all the information that i want nor do i give you all the information that you require mm-hmm. or a mechanism by where that is distilled and where you can reference and go back to yeah you can't after the, after you know if you have a 10 or 15 minute consult where you, unless you make notes or you, you you're, it's a verbal it's an it's almost like oral history right, it's right. Like, how, how do you access it after the fact and we used to you know, we, and i remember especially my patients had gone abroad say back to india so they used to come back with these absolutely really neat set of notes yeah all packaged in a in a, in a folder that you could say right this is what this is what's happened to me um, so I thought, well, why can't we digitize this? You know, why can't I get this information beforehand? Now I'm algorithmic in my in my clinic consultations. I ask the same questions, right. follow the same decision tree. Well, why not ask those questions beforehand? Why yeah. not get some of the information like my blood pressure, your heart rate, the weight, even an ECG again beforehand? Yeah. Um, if I know that the patient is coming to me for a coronary angioplasty, why not get give them that information beforehand uh, so that they can read up on on uh, uh, on that? So what all of that means is that you know the consultation that you have can be much more specific and personalised to you. you know, yeah, you're spending less uh, less time on generic stuff. But more time is right. You've told me that these this is your problem. You've told me that uh, these are your blood pressure, heart rates, and this is what I'm going to tell you about with your your specific case. And by the way, do you now have any specific questions? Given that you had some time to to beforehand to know what you're going to ask, and so that was the the, the concept of it. And to take the next step forward. I, I always had an idea of the concept of an asynchronous review. You know, okay. you know that, that's what's going to actually, and we can talk about it, is what I genuinely feel is going to release the real kind of efficiencies within the healthcare system. Again, I talk about, when I spoke to you before when we came on, was that we use digital in lots of other aspects of our life now that, that we are not using in healthcare. Now, you know, me, for example, uh, right now, if I wanted to speak to my energy company or EE for something, um, I, I really can't be bothered to wait and hold the phone for an operator to I'd quickly go on their chatbot and ask a quick question. Yeah. So as a public, we're becoming far more transactional for things that are appropriate for a quick transaction. So... If we take that to, to healthcare, if, for example, I've seen you, um, Steve, and I say, right, okay, I'm going to give you this tablet to make your chest pain go away. Yeah. The next time, all I want to know is 
did it work? Did it make you feel better? And we can do that in a very transactional way. So I ask you those questions uh, beforehand. You have the comments, any other questions. And rather than us speaking over 15 minutes to do that, I review whether you're feeling better or not. I quickly send you a letter. Yep, I've checked your questions, checked your, your, your observations. You're doing well. Well done. Let's continue. We'll have an appointment again in six months' time, but we can talk at that point. Yep. So it's it's those that I feel we're going those that kind of transition um i, I mean i i completely agree and that's one of the things that the one of the reasons why we of our mission with PopDoc is is to do that around blood testing and, and preventative testing but we're going to just stop for a quick commercial break now we'll be back in two minutes with dr deb stas from Autis health and consultant cardiologist at Bart's health we will be right back The station that makes you feel good. How good are vitamin C supplements? Usually only a small proportion of vitamin C actually reaches your cells and has a positive effect. Whereas the high absorption levels of Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C help maintain optimal vitamin C levels in your body and strengthen your immune system. Now get 10% off when you choose Goldman Laboratories liposomal vitamin C capsules. Just quote 10 off at goldmanlaboratories.com. Do you suffer from pain? B-Cure Laser, a home-use CE-approved medical device for the effective treatment of pain, is now available in the UK. The results of a double-blind trial has shown that B-Cure Laser offers a significant reduction in pain compared to the placebo group. To get your special B-Cure offer now, call free on 0808 501 5122 or Google Radio Pro London. B-Cure Laser. B-Cure Laser. UK Health Radio. The station that makes you feel good. Hi, and welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, your host. And so this week we have Dr. Deb Stas, uh, who is a CEO and founder of Autis On and a consultant cardiologist at the Bart's Heart Center. So before the break, we were talking and getting into the, the background of all of the challenges that um, Debs was solving or that Debs wanted to solve and is solving with, with Autis. So let's jump straight back into where we were around this idea of trying to make trying to make that journey um, as far as healthcare is concerned to align it with the way that people live their lives in other aspects. So Uber for taxis, booking.com for hotels, whatever it would be. Um, and so how, how does Autis do that? Give us some background. What does it actually do and, and how does it help to do to, w- w- with that vision, which I completely agree with? Yeah. I mean, so when we started this, there was, there was various other solutions that were tackling kind of one part of that journey. So, for example, your booking um, system, there'd be there'd be solutions out there that allowed, well, just, just now um, kind of going on the market at the time for patients to be able to reschedule appointments. Um, it, there, are, there are others that were tackling kind of the remote monitoring uh, space. There weren't many that tried to to try kind of align all of those things. And the reason why that I, why I thought that was important is because 
patients will get and clinicians will get app fatigue. Um, yeah, you know, you, to go to multiple multiple different um, uh, resources to be able to, you know, change your appointment, look at look at particular health related information. All of it is important to the patient, and all of it is tied in. You know, I, I want to be able to automate the information that I give to the patient according to my appointment. You know, you shouldn't have to one well, give an appointment with Dr. Das and then remember, right, all Dr. Das's information that he likes giving out is X. So someone else then uploads that information on another portal. Yeah, it's just yeah. not practical. It's just Correct. not going to happen. And so there's that disconnect between the systems um, that do so. And then that's the same for a clinician. Um, out there so my vision was right okay well imagine I'm going to put my patient on a on a uh, on a procedural pathway I want the patient to be able to get an appointment digitally the ability to reschedule it answer any questions including a consent so I wanted to digitize the consent journey give them all the real health related information that's involved in that procedure have their pre-assessment done remotely, virtually, with them filling out whatever information, again, remotely produce a PDF such that the pre-assessment part is uh, efficient. Then there's the follow-up. Patient has the procedure. Well, I want to know about my outcomes, the patient-reported outcomes. I want a system that times, that knows that, okay, Steve has had a manageplasty on August the 1st. I want a three-month, six-month, 12-month questionnaire that is automated and sent to him. And I get that data back. And utilising that entire journey, have a system that reviews both on a population basis how people patients are improving or not go or not or how do they go or on an individual basis so that we can learn and improve that pathway so everything that autos tries to do is automate that journey um, and what what is happening what what's the what's the incumbent process for this for all of what what I mean, what what are you comparing yourself against? I mean, it all makes complete sense to me, but I would imagine it makes sense to everyone listening, right? Because that's how we do things in lots of other verticals. Yes, I think that the challenges are always change management. Yeah, you know, if if we were to build the IT infrastructure from scratch on the NHS now, we wouldn't build what we have right now. And, And the reason being is it is such a beast to move away from the the the, the change management required to move away from legacy systems that we use is immense. So we have alternative challenges. Uh, uh, and what we're trying to, to fix with interoperability. But you know, the, the current challenge at the moment, the current way is usually disconnected. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And we have safeguards in the system that allow for still that information transfer it's very manual a process if you wanted to get information regarding health uh, disease it's you know five or six pamphlets that are printed and handed to the patient if you want to do a consent for a procedure it's usually two minutes prior to a a procedure which the patient doesn't retain three quarters of the information and it's a quick signature yeah so we have workarounds, but they're not, you know. It, it, but, they're, it, but, 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 but to your point, they're workarounds. Correct. Right? They're, they're sort of 
there are ways to make the current system work to a level that's acceptable, but is not necessarily what we anyone would choose if they could do it. Do it Absolutely. over. No, no, no one in their right mind would turn around right now and say that you know the the infrastructures that we have are allow for an efficient process for for either the clinician or a, or a patient to navigate that that kind of typical journey. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's that's what we were we're trying to uh, trying to solve. Um, equally, you know, there's uh, there's increasing challenges now with uh, with COVID and kind of the elective back back. Yeah, let's let's talk about that and how well your views on that and and you know the the, the severity of it, but also how something like Autis can can play a role. Yeah, I think. There is no doubt that we've got a, a, a significant challenge. Um, we've had almost a year and a half of not doing elective activity at the same pace that we have previously been doing it. And it is not like we were starting from a position of strength prior to that. Mm-hmm. So one of the challenges is, is how do we get there is a backlog and how do we get through this? As I mentioned, I don't think brute force is going to get because we don't have the staff that we can you know, quickly pull upon. And those staff that we do have are exhausted. You know, yeah, I mean, they've uh, been through two years of absolute, I mean, just, just brutal, brutal work. So, yeah. And the only, you know, we there is a finite number of hours and resources in the day. You can only get through a backlog if you do more work. And, you know, if you're in the traditional way, more work, more hours, more people. Okay. And unfortunately, I, you know, I don't think we have any of those. So we have to do things, therefore, differently. And more importantly, where our focus has to move away from just working down the list but more prioritising who needs to be done mm-hmm. in, a, in an ordered manner. Just because someone was waiting six months for a cardiac surgery compared to mm-hmm. someone one month, but that patient one month may be deteriorating rapidly. Well, I, I was going to ask about this issue because about the definition of elective surgery, because, again, I'm not a doctor, so I might be completely off the mark here, but how many i mean how how truly elective is is heart surgery or any kind of cardiac surgery that doesn't necessarily strike me as particularly elective but maybe it is yeah i mean look anything anything that doesn't need to be done as an acute admission into hospital you know is classified as largely an elective procedure wow so um again in 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 a in an ideal a healthcare system, irrespective of um, uh, COVID or not, you you would you would hope that a cardiac procedure will be done within a certain period of time. We all have our um, you know the targets the, and your, targets your to, boundaries. Yeah, to, to, to achieve it. And on the whole, we you know, we do that. But um, with this, will become with COVID will become an even even more of a challenge. And like I said, there are real consequences for people that don't get their cardiac surgery or procedure um, in a timely manner. 
um, because they can deteriorate. A lot of what we do is preventative to try and save the heart from deteriorating. So you know, we do things because it's on a on a you know, on a timer. Um, mm. If we if we miss it, there has some real consequences from patients well, who get heart failure to and, people who pass away. And all, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, yeah, yeah. Um, and is it is there is it also a challenge, which is to say that, say, for example, it should be a month, but it sort of isn't going to be a month and it keeps extending. But what how do you track that person to make sure that they're not entering a period of severe deterioration and then would require an acute intervention? Because the the is there that system that can provide that sort of level of detail monitoring? No, there isn't. And that's what the, well, that's where. Um, we think some of this can help. There's been some work done uh, across London uh, and certainly a thought process of can, can remote monitoring help uh, in these kind of clinical situations that allow you to, um, uh, to almost get, get kind of triggers from patients and, and find out from a cluster of people, is there anyone particularly deteriorating? So we can pick them out and treat them earlier. Because at the moment, the way that the system, it seems like the way that you're, you're saying the backlog is sort of would normally be managed is a bit more chronological and not necessarily yeah. prioritised based on risk or severity of risk or, or that sort of thing. Well, there's always, there is always some degree of prioritisation when you try and look on clinical parameters, you try and say, OK, this is, this is really severe, we need to get him done earlier. OK, mm-hmm. but even when you use those those parameters sometimes you still miss patients who who deteriorate you know despite yep. your, your your risk stratification i mean it's, um, it's not an exact science right like exactly. the body is the body exactly and you know you never know there'll be again with the list is so big that there may be 100 patients with the exact same severity score but you know one will deteriorate you know, but right. because the list is so big, you can't just leave that to chance. You've got to have a mechanism such that we can, you know, either either an easy trigger for the patient to kind of almost send out a distress alarm, or some some sort of monitoring that that uh, allows the cl- clinician to know that this patient is deteriorating. Now, this is none of this is proven. You know, we don't right. have established remote monitoring. Um, uh, uh, session, uh, kind of pathways for elective, elective care, you know, but we've never, never really had, had to. We've never but had a situation like COVID. Yeah, you know? yeah, with that, but that's, you know, like necessity is the mother of invention, right? We, we, we cannot do nothing. Yeah, that is that right. is, uh, that is the well, and 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 we've had a few, we've had a number of people on from the social care sector, founders in the social care sector. You know, and the staffing issue is 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 a similar one, which is you can't manufacture more staff. You, you just you, you can't as much. And you, or clearly, we should be trying to get more people into the healthcare services. That's that's obviously true, but that's not something that can be executed on you know, in days and weeks and months, you know, there's a finite amount. I mean, particularly with doctors and senior healthcare professionals, clearly there's a lot of training that has to be done, right? So there's a big, big lag. Um, yes, you can kind of bring people in from overseas, but guess what? Pretty much every country is probably trying to do something similar, right? So it's, a, I mean, it's, we're not the only, you know, we're not the only game in town at, at this point. Um, and so the role of digital becomes even more important to, to, I think one of our guests, previous guests said it, look, 
we should be using digital. And it's a bit like what you said around, let's make transactional digital where it can be. Let's use digital where it can be used, where something can be digitized safely, accurately, efficiently. Let's be looking to do that as a basis, as a grant, as the base camp. And then we can worry about everything else. Absolutely. You know, the, the, all these marginal gains that you'll get are really important in the big picture. Yep. You know, 2% efficiency here, 2% efficiency there. You know, it, it is really, really important. And we have and, to- that, that, and, and just to jump in, that's probably because you're dealing with such high volumes of people. Correct. Right? So, so 2% in a system that deals with 65 million people a year is enormous. Yes, exactly, and we just have to, as as a as a health as a uh, you know, we we have to kind of accept that we haven't been open to it as per other uh, other industries, and far more ruthless about it. Yeah, and I I completely accept that we we have to have safeguards for those who are digitally excluded. It is yes. really, really, really important to have those safeguards. But too long, those safeguards have been used to block uh, change. Yeah, yeah. Making, what, the, making perfect the enemy of the... Correct. And what happens is to safeguard um, a few, a significant majority also don't get the appropriate treatment or an efficient treatment. So we have to build systems that also allow for those who can use digital, those who can be transactional that, and quickly, efficiently see them. But by being more efficient with those people, you do have the extra time to those who are digitally excluded, those who can't do a virtual consultation. You can bring them in and see them. Yeah. Well, yeah, and we can dig into this. We're about to break for another, we have to just break for two minutes. But I, this is an area of real passion for me, which is around how can digital enable clinicians or anyone in the healthcare system to the work at the top of their grade, right? We, we, people that need more care should be able to access more care directly by introducing digital systems to handle the, the, the majority, as you say, that don't necessarily need that level of interaction. So we'll be back after two minutes. Um, and then we'll um, do the final section of this week's Health Tech Hour. So, yeah, stay tuned. UK Health Radio, the station that makes you feel good. Galar Light is the quantum energy emitted from the universe, from the sun and stars. Now, Tom Palladino, a humanitarian and scalar light researcher, has created the world's only scalar light healing system, a system that can bring long-distance healing and wellness to humans, pets, and plants via a photograph. Get your free 15-day trial now at scalarlight.com or click on the Scalar Light banner on the UK Health Radio website. Shields like masks are top of mind right now. But did you know you have inner armor working constantly to protect you from pathogens? It keeps you healthy and thriving. It's your immune system. Ion Gut triggers the body's natural ability to support gut strength all year long, so your immune system can protect you when you need it the most. How are you treating your inner armor? Visit uk.ionbiome.com to learn more. Ion Gut. Protect what protects you. UK Health Radio, 
the station that makes you feel good. Welcome back to this week's Health Tech Hour with me, Steve Roost, your host, and our guest, Dr. Deb Dash, who um, CEO of Autis and a leading cardiologist, consultant cardiologist with Barts Health Center, and a leader in the digital transformation of the NHS. So um, before we broke, we were getting into this whole area around how can digital be used to do to take the pressure off um, clinicians so that they can work more to the top of their grade so what how, how does autis sort of enable that or what's your view around all the wider system how how can i guess what's the limitations of digital because people talk about digital all the time right yeah. and there's a lot there's there's so many companies now which is wonderful i mean there's all i mean it's fantastic i mean it's such a huge explosion of of um innovation which is phenomenal but how do you think that the healthcare system should start to sort of filter through all of this or you know, because it's 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 hard, right? Because there's just so much out there. Yeah. So look, um, so auto, it's a really hard uh, hard thing to sell, and you know, I see it as someone who's a clinician, but it's also in the same space. There's lots of non-clinician entrepreneurs. They'll mm-hmm. come in and they'll see a clinician, and they'll say, "Great, you know what? My digital solution will allow you to be more efficient. It'll allow you to see." 20 patients in the same time that you could see six. Yeah. And I just want to flip that back as a clinician. You think, gosh, right. In the same amount of time now, I can get through 20 patients. That's 14 more bits of work that I need to do. 14 more added risk. Yeah. Every patient that you see is, to some degree, you're taking some clinical responsibility and liability Mm -hmm. for that. And you're, you're telling them to do it in a way that is foreign to them. Yeah. Right. Our traditional way is seeing a patient, taking time, distilling what their problem is, conveying that, clinically examining them. And it is, hard, it is a hard sell. And that's essentially what Autis is trying to do, is trying to make that journey efficient for not only the patient, but also the clinician. Can I? So an example of one of our clinics is where we have a mix between face-to-face video but all of that allows for information gathering and delivery beforehand and then a mix of asynchronous reviews and that's exactly what we've done we've gone from a uh, a clinic of x amount of patients to five or so more added on but in the same amount of time and the way that we've you know, I've certainly kind of reconciled with that myself as a clinician and of course I want to see um Of course, I want to see more patients and try and treat more patients, but I want to do that safely. Yeah, Um, and you and 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 it can't be it can't be just a sort of pile them high, you know, approach, right? Like there's a there's a minimum standard of care, there's a minimum number of questions that need to be asked, there's a minimum level of investigation, you know. Exactly, and the way that I reconcile some of this is that I was doing a lot of this. Anyway, I was often, not in my normal clinic template, I would ask patients to email me their blood pressure result or email me if they're doing okay or not. And it was, so therefore I'm doing that work. It's a workaround. You already had your own workaround. Correct. I was doing that work because ultimately, even though I was, you know, because I thought it was safe for the patient, that still means I'm going to do the work. It's just I was never getting the, the reward to some degree that this is my 16 patient list. Mm-hmm. So 
most of it is we it allows clinicians to try and have more touch points with their patient to allow them to give um, um, a, a more personalized but increased uh, uh, treatment and a safer treatment it's all about being safe we have these arbitrary if you saw me in clinic so right I'll see you back in six months why in six months? That's just simply a function of my appointment availability, not yeah. a function of when I want to see you. Or yeah. not even not even necessarily see you, but I would like to see some data Correct. about your progress. I don't necessarily need to see you. Yes. I just need to have accurate data. Correct. And the only time slot I've got for that in my appointment is because the way that is it is enabled is six months or even to some some of my followers so it's 12 months down the line right. so we're having these workarounds you know where okay we're a bit of a fudge I, th- I think you'll be okay I don't need yeah. to, to hear from you but you're a bit I'm a bit worried about email me yeah right. yeah so, so that's we're doing these kind of workarounds and so uh, we've got we're now getting used to advice and guidance for general practitioners you mm-hmm. know so rather than patient coming through just we uh, a general practitioner will ask you know uh, cardiologists and they're doing lots of other uh, specialties oh what do I do about this patient yeah mm-hmm. and we'll give them advice so it's an asynchronous review we don't do it there yeah. yeah I'm just and that's allowed for efficiencies um as well so I'm what we're doing is taking that but rather than miss the, the one part of that asynchronous review is it misses out the most important person yeah which is the patient we're yeah. communicating with everyone bar the patient so why not have that similar ability so and and the most important part of this is not that it should be asynchronous for everyone it just allows a clinician a toolkit to be able to not treat everyone the same yeah. And that is the point now. We cannot, um, we cannot go through this backlog, be it in appointments, be it through through procedures or or, um, or elective waiting, treating everyone exactly the same through brute force. We have to be very selective on how how we how we see people. Can we see people and treat people in in a more efficient way, which allows you more time for the more complex. So. Um- you're obviously a clinical entrepreneur, so clinician turned entrepreneur, and you're now you, you wear both hats simultaneously, which kind of blows my mind, but credit to you for being able to do that. Um, do you believe that the, the successful, the, the, to be successful in, in a, a fit, call it an efficiency-based solution within the NHS, that you have, to, that, that you're, it, you have a, a, a built-in benefit having been a clinician already, so you understand intuitively because you've been living it, as opposed to someone saying, oh, I've built this, I've got this great piece of software and it improves efficiency, but you're sort of selling against the tide because you've never actually done it. Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, um, I, I think we all like talking to our own. Yeah, right. the, the fact that I'm within the healthcare system comes with a degree of credibility. I don't think I have any more credibility than someone like yourself that has a passion for an idea. What it does do is that when you're speaking to your colleagues uh, or, or those within the system, you can empathise and speak to them in a way that you know about you know, common problems that you're, you're, you're talking about. And it's just that ability to convey that, uh, convey that 
convey that message because you've gone through the system. But you also understand some of the challenges. And some of the challenges within the healthcare system are unique to the healthcare system that you know are, are not seen in, in, in other industries. Um, so it is it, it is a labyrinth to navigate, especially the UK healthcare sector. Yes, I would agree with that. Um, and as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you know. You say most most investors come out and say, "Stay well away from the NHS," yeah, simply because it is it is it is difficult. But that is not. I think it misses the point in some way because actually, if you make it within the NHS, it is the biggest testament your country your company can get. Yeah, I think that we. Yeah, I mean, in our experience at PopTalk, my experience is is really that you can't not have a strategy for collaborating with the NHS in the UK and be a credible healthcare company. I I don't think that particularly. I I don't think that really is viable, particularly. But you know, similarly, if you're if you don't have if you can't demonstrate that your business can be successful with or without the NHS, because obviously the NHS isn't an overnight success. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a journey. You know, and you should be able to invest in that journey and continue on that journey and so on. Um, so actually, I think you need to be able to do both. But I, I, I'm with you. I don't that ultimately. I mean, I'm in this. My mission, our mission, is to try and improve people's health. You know, ninety percent of all healthcare is delivered in the UK via the NHS. And so, like, if you don't have a strategy for how you're going to develop within the NHS or work with the NHS, then I sort of question why you're really in it. Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the thing about it is that if you are able to be a success within the NHS, in the, you know, it, it gives you the biggest step up in any healthcare system. It's a badge of kind of... Badge of honour. Badge of credibility, badge of efficiency. We're the most rigorously tested uh, from a, you know, a delivery perspective. For per pound we spend, no matter what they say, we get the best outcomes. And, then, right. and so that is, uh, that is why, although it is a challenge... Um, uh, and it is. There's no point sugarcoating the NHS uh, delivery is an is a absolute nightmare. Well, but I mean, when you, when you know, it should it should. This is what I say to people: is like it should be rigorous. It's a public service, right? <laughs> it should be rigorous. It shouldn't be just kind of like you know, come one, come all. It should be hard to get in and to deliver. Absolutely, but I still think there are. You know, we have to be honest with ourselves. There are layers of bureaucracy that do not need to be there. There are layers when I talk about the change management aspect of it yeah. that do not need to be that do not and no longer can be there uh, for us to move move forward. But it, when you do crack it, uh, and there is nothing better uh, in there because you know you, then you know that you have a product. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, and so, you know, being an entrepreneur, having your own company is hard. Working in the NHS is hard. How, how do you kind of what do you tell yourself or what's your mission? or How do you stay in the fight? How do you keep yourself kind of motivated to keep doing what you do? Ultimately, um, it's it's seeing we all as entrepreneurs, we have a vision. Yeah. And if we start seeing that vision uh, bear out. That's that's the that's the only, only kind of reward we need. And moreover, um, 
our vision is steeped in helping helping people. It sounds cliche, but more you know when you, when I start looking at some of our stats within uh, or to some when I look that uh, we recently won a um, uh, BMJ award for our heart stat pathway. Oh, you know, cool! Congratulations. Yeah, yeah, and that, that was, yeah I mean, it, it's great because you're actually you're 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 changing lives and you're and you're testing your own hypothesis you know it you know we i had a thought that this is how we need to deliver healthcare in the future i could have been wrong i still can be wrong right but you know slowly um uh, the healthcare s- setup system is moving in that that direction and it's an exciting one um like any, uh, it's the same as, as a cardiologist who gets a new bit of kit to do an operation with. My kit is a new software to treat a patient. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. It has to be viewed exactly the same. Like these aren't just sort of like, I don't know, apps that people play with. Like this is a new way of treating patients. This is, you know, it sits in, in the same, you know, universe, as you say, surgical tools or, you know, a scalpel. You know, gauze. It's it's a, it's a similar. It's just it's just it happens to be a, a, a digital, yeah, a digital interface. Oh, and well, it, it's it's called digital therapeutics because they are now. Right. The, you know, yep. it's it's a therapeutic tool. Brilliant. Well, look, that brings us to the end of the show, Debs. Thank you so much for coming on. I had a blast. I thought that was a great way to start the year of, of, of the Health Tech Hour. So thank you very much for your time. Pleasure. Um, thank you very much to everyone for listening. And yeah, that was Dr. Deb Stash. That's from um, Autis Health uh, and a leading cardiologist at the Bart's, at the Bart's, Health, um, Bart's Heart Centre. So yeah, thanks a lot. Have a great week, everybody. And yeah, happy, happy new year. Happy new year. When I'm gone.